morning. Good to see those of you here in person, and also thanks for joining us online to those of you who are doing that. I want to welcome everyone here to the First Universalist Unitarian Church of Wausau, where we have been gathered since 1870. We are a vital voice for liberal religion here in central Wisconsin, and I want to welcome everybody here this morning. I don't know what sort of baggage from the week of head week behind you, rather, that you're carrying with you into the week ahead, but know that whatever you're going through, you're welcome. It's my privilege, and the church's privilege, to welcome our guest speaker here this morning, Latanya Campbell. Thanks for joining us. I have a bit of an introduction about Latanya. Latanya is a mentor, consultant, and advocate, and she has been inspiring, empowering, and motivating individuals and communities for over 15 years. 
As a facilitator, she uses a strength-based approach to create individual and organizational change. She is a coordinator of a victim advocacy program. She began her career in 2008, helping to empower victims of violence to become safe, stable, and self-reliant. Her work addressing racism, implicit bias, and systemic oppression began as a means to ensure the safety and self-sufficiency of those she served, combating all forms of institutional oppression while lifting the voice of survivors. It's my privilege to welcome LaTanya here this morning. I can't think of any announcements to specify, so with that, join me in reciting the church's chalice lighting. The words are printed in your order of service. We light this chalice for the light of truth. With that, rise in spirit or body and join in our opening hymn, number 347, Gather the Spirit.
And if you would, please remain standing for our affirmation. The words are printed in your order of service. Love is the doctrine of this church. The quest of truth is its sacrament, and service is its prayer. To dwell together in peace, to seek knowledge and freedom, to serve human need, to the end that all souls shall grow into harmony with the divine. Thus do we covenant with each other. In our doxology. share with you a story that was actually told at our evening story time on Tuesday, but it ties so beautifully to the refugee resettlement efforts that we're exploring as a congregation, and the author wrote this book specifically to encourage us and remind us that it's important to celebrate our differences. The book, awesome, <laughs> the book is called The Proudest Blue, A Story of Hijab and Family. It was written by Olympic medalist Ibtihaj Muhammad. Art is by Hadam Ali, and it was published by Little Brown Books for Young Readers. Mama holds out the pink. Mama loves pink. But Asiya shakes her head. I know why. Behind the counter is the brightest blue, the color of the ocean. If you squint your eyes and pretend there's no line between the water and the sky, it's the first day hijab. Asiya knows it, I know it. We're sisters. The next day, I wait. A new backpack, new light-up shoes. I feel special. I feel like twirling. Asiya comes out of the house and I stop. It is the most beautiful first day of school ever. I am walking with a princess, so I pretend to be one too. But even princesses need to stop to cross the street. Asiya takes my hand in hers and says, Come on, Faiza. We speed walk it. Fourteen steps. Fourteen light-ups to get across. Asiya takes me to my line first, hugs me goodbye. I turn to watch her leave and give a little curtsy to the princess going to the sixth grade area. She's easy to see. Her hijab smiles at me the whole way. My first day hijab is going to be blue, too. What's that on your sister's head? The girl in front of me whispers. A scarf, I whisper back. I don't know why a whisper came out. I try again louder now. A scarf, hijab. Oh, she whispers. Asiya's hijab isn't a whisper. Asiya's hijab is like the sky on a sunny day. The sky isn't a whisper. It is always there, special and regular. The first day of wearing hijab is important, Mama has said. It means being strong. I turn, but I can't see the blue anymore. I run to the big kid's side, 27 steps to see Asiya. I need to give her another hug. I need to give, see her smile. 
Faiza, Asiya's eyes wander, wonder why I'm here. Are you excited, I ask, about the first day hijab? She nods, smiling big, and I feel better. Someone laughs from nearby, a boy pointing at Asiya. Why? Asiya's hijab isn't a laugh. Asiya's hijab is like the ocean waving to the sky. It's always there, strong and friendly. Some people won't understand your hijab, Mama said. But if you understand who you are, one day they will too. In class, I draw a picture. Two princesses in hijab having a picnic on an island where the ocean meets the sky. The girl who whispered in line says she likes it. She says it's so loud. The teacher comes over to see it. I wonder if Asiya drew a picture too. Recess time is for five cartwheels in a row. I land the last one near the sixth graders, near Asiya and her friends. Near, boy, near a boy is yelling, I'm going to pull that tablecloth off your head. Asiya's hijab isn't a tablecloth. Asiya's hijab is blue, only blue. Asiya turns away, her friends turn away. They race to the middle of the schoolyard, their shoes pounding the pavement, playing tag. Mama, don't carry around the hurtful words that others say. Drop them. They are not yours to keep. They belonged only to those who said them. It takes me 48 steps to get away from the yelling boy. After school, I look around. I look for whispers, laughs, and shouts. But I only see Asiya waiting for me like it's a regular day. She's smiling, strong. We cross the road hand in hand. I can't wait to get home to show Mama the picture I drew, to show Asiya that I'm wearing the same hijab in it. Because Asiya's hijab is like the ocean and the sky, no line between them, saying hello with a loud wave, saying I'll always be here, like sisters, like me and Asiya. And that is our story for today. Now, for some special fun, I'm going to invite the elementary kids, and actually anyone of all ages, welcome to join us outside for making some nature mandalas. They're also welcome to stay inside here. So will you please join me in blessing our children out to the lobby area with May Peace Surround You. I'd like to invite everyone now into a spirit of prayer and meditation. I believe that to pray, you have to pray with your whole body. And so as you sit, I recommend that you put both feet flat on the ground. Take a deep breath. Become aware of your beating heart. the people who join you here this morning to make up the congregation. Let us journey into silence with these words. 
How hard it is to enter the realm of life's spirit when all around us we hear of death and illness, of violence and destruction. Because we trust in life's promises to bend towards virtue, we pray comfort for those who mourn, ease for the sick and dying, and for strength for those who care for them. And we ask for honesty and humility in those who seek to govern, for wisdom to discern the path to wholeness, and for courage to make good decisions for the benefit of all. We pray justice and compassion to places where now there is only abuse and punishment. And we pray understanding and hope where now there is only anger and fear. We lift up those who have asked us to pray and those who cannot pray for themselves. We pray for those who are close to us and for those whose needs are only a story from far away. We pray for the needs of others and for the healing of our own fears. And now let us call to mind the sorrows and joys in our lives, and let us meditate on them in silence together now. Amen. Please remain seated for our prayer hymn number 123, Spirit of Life.
Randock Lovely wrote, let there be an offering to sustain and strengthen this place which is sacred to so many of us, a community of memory and of hope, for we are now keepers of the dream. This church is a people-powered institution. It takes the generous support of people like you to keep the lights on, as the saying goes. And so rather than pass around an offering plate at this time, there's a basket that you can place a free will gift in if you'd like, or you can stop by our website if you'd like to give online. I thank you in advance for your generosity. So the suggested reading for this morning's conversation is taken from an op-ed piece that was published in the New York Times on April 16, 2018. It was written by Miles E. Johnson. The title of the piece is Beyonce and the End of Respectability Politics. And the author writes, Beyonce is at the pinnacle of her career. At the Coachella Festival in the Southern California desert on Saturday, she showed that there's nothing this mother of three cannot do. But she didn't just kill the performance, she also rewrote the book on black respectability politics. She could have decided to play to the majority white audience with a show that made it easier to forget cultural differences. Or she could be herself. And Beyonce chose the latter. And putting on a show that celebrated the diversity of black people, she conveyed that no matter how much fame or money she has, she will refuse to divorce herself from black culture, even the parts that are underappreciated, disrespected, or misunderstood by white people. Beyonce was performing her music, but she was also saying that the performance of respectability, the policing of black people's behavior and appearance, to better appeal to white people is an oppression we don't need in our lives. Black musicians in particular have long been told how they should look and perform to sustain their success and be marketable to a larger audience. That often meant that black artists distanced themselves from the things associated with black culture, especially the things that might be coded as not respectable. 
Michael Jackson, Oprah Winfrey, and President Barack Obama have all been accused of staying aloof from black culture to gain more power and be more relatable to a wider, wider audience. It is a common belief among black people that the more successful black people become, the more black people should keep away from black culture, especially when white people are looking, and especially at work. Beyonce's mother, Tina Lawson, echoed this sentiment before her daughter's performance, quote, I told Beyonce that I was afraid that the predominantly white audience at Coachella would be confused by all of the black culture and black college culture because it was something that they might not get, she published on Instagram. But Beyonce assuaged her fears, quote, I have worked very hard to get to the point where I have a true voice, Miss Lawson recalls her daughter saying. And at this point in my life and my career, I have a responsibility to do what's best for the world and not what is most popular. Here it ends our reading. Morning. 
I didn't realize you were standing up on something. <laughs> Can you guys hear me okay? My name is LaTanya Campbell. My pronouns are she and hers. Is this echoing? I don't know. Sorry. Yeah. Can you hear me okay if I just do this one? Yeah. Okay. Um, I like to acknowledge the indigenous nations um, whose lands we occupy. And I'd also like to take a moment of silence just for all the people who lost their lives as a result of domestic violence or racism, um, for they are the reason that I got into this work. Thank you. I want to acknowledge that October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. Um, we do have several activities and events throughout the month of October. If you want to go to the Women's Community's website, you'll be able to access that information from there. Um, I do want to thank you to um, Pastor Brian and the congregation for inviting me to speak to you today. Um, and I also appreciate all of your advocacy on anti-oppression work that you do throughout the community. It's definitely not gone unnoticed. Um, I do want to give a disclaimer. So anytime a person from a marginalized community come up here and present on any topic of anti-oppression, it comes from a place of vulnerability. And it opens myself up to you. So I ask that you also open yourself up to me um, with your hearts and with your minds and just embrace me as we walk through this journey together. So just a little bit about me. Um, go ahead. You can't. Is that better? Okay, just a little bit about me. Um, again, I, my name is LaTanya Campbell. I work at the women's community. Um, I've been there for over 10 years providing supportive services to victims of abuse. Um, I supervise our transitional living and abuse and later life program. I am also the founder of LPRC Diversity Consulting Services, and I'm an appointed member of the Diversity Affairs Commission, the Wausau Freedom and Liberation Committee, and also a member of Mosaic Steering Committee. Um, so just what to expect today, we're gonna talk about what is respectability politics and why the mantra of I don't see color, how that impacts and plays into respectability politics, along with um, why good behavior is not good enough. Um, if you have a pen and piece of paper, I ask that you take it out. Um, if I say something to you if I say something and it invokes any type of emotion of defensiveness, guilt, anger, shock, frustration, I want you to write down what I said and what feelings that it provoked so that you're able to go through and process that at a later time. Um, I process why what I said made you feel that way and where it came from. I'd be more than happy to come back and have that conversation. Um, today is obviously going to be just me talking to you, but I like to do where we can have a conversation with one another and learn and grow from each other. 
So respectability politics. It is a term coined by Evelyn Brooke Higginbotham saying that a set of beliefs that conformity to mainstream standards of appearance and behavior will protect a person from a marginalized group from prejudice and systemic injustices. It's the messaging children of color start to receive as a child um, that states that if they um, ascribe to the mainstream status quo, that they'll be protected, that they will be safe. Basically, it is um, what is considered good, what's considered bad, um, what's considered normal, or what's considered deviant. Um, it looks differently depending upon how society identifies and stereotypes that person in that particular demographic. Um, it is important because people of color are taught to, like I said, ascribe to the mainstream status quo, and anything outside of that is deemed unnormal. So example, women are taught to keep themselves safe, right? If we go alone at night, we should go with someone else. Um, we should make sure we don't have anything low cut, too tight, too short, um, anything that's considered sexy or revealing. Um, if we're going out to a restaurant or a bar, we're taught to um, not leave our drinks alone. Um, make sure that we don't take a drink from someone that we don't know. And if we do these things, then we'll keep ourselves safe from being raped when in fact research shows that doing these things will not protect a woman from being raped. So respectability politics as it relates to black people claim that if we assimilate to the dominant culture, then we're gonna be safe, loved, and prosperous. It means that we're gonna be considered one of the good ones. The goal of racial equality from the lens of respectability politics is grounded in the notion that black people have to prove that they are worthy. Worthy of equal treatment, worthy of dignity, worthy of respect. And privilege is having all of those things without having um, to apply for it. You didn't have to prove that you were worthy for those things. Again, this message is ingrained from children at birth. Black people tell other black people what they need to do to be accepted. White people tell white people what black people need to do to be presented as good. So let's take a look at this short video um, from PBS on Senator Tim Scott. I'm not here. Are you able to turn the volume? Speaking about these experiences, they can scrutinize by law enforcement because of the color of the skin. Here's an answer. For those who don't know, there are a few ways to identify a member of Congress or Senate. Well, typically we've been here for a couple of years, the law enforcement officers need to know your face and it is identified by your face. But if that doesn't happen, and you have a So it's easy to identify a 
So as you can see, um, Senator Tim Scott, he is a black man, but very articulate. He has political status, clean shaven, his hair is cut low, um, and he is still stopped. They still say, the pen, I know, but you, I don't. All of those things didn't matter, his education, his criminal um, record or lack thereof, what his credit score was. All they saw was a black man there. So most presume that respectability politics comes into play when confronted by law enforcement, especially after the George Floyd incident. But it doesn't stop there, as suggested by the Ahmaud Osbery killing or the Trayvon Martin um, killing. It plays a factor into people of color's lives every day. Some respectability politics messaging is examples of um, don't have your radio too loud, speak softly, don't wear braids, don't wear big earrings, good, good grades, get a higher education, don't make any mistakes or get in trouble. Take a always take a receipt with you when you leave the store. Um, don't travel on dirt roads, or if you get pulled over, keep your hands on the steering wheel. Don't make any sudden moves so that they'll think that you are a threat. Um, don't argue with anyone in authority. If he would have confronted that gentleman um, with a pen and argued and said, my pen says who I am, that could have put his life in jeopardy. They could have contacted law enforcement and it could have turned into something much bigger than what it was. So by not doing those things or some of those things that I described means that you're gonna be safe. But white people can do all of these things and not think twice about it. The word racist is a social taboo. It has a negative connotation, and it leads to feelings of defensiveness, anger, um, guilt. It has so much power that it shuts conversations down before they ever even get started. Um, racism is negative attitudes and beliefs about people of color. Um, it's a belief that some races are more superior to others, and it equates to an unequal distribution of wealth and power based on that race. Racism is a word um, to describe acts that are discriminatory and offensive. It does not mean that a person is good or bad, um, and it's not just limited to acts of bigotry, like someone burning a cross or wearing a robe, um, Confederate flags, which is what it's traditionally associated with. 
The term racist is simply used to identify and challenge areas um, in which biases and institutions of oppression are present. So to become aware of our personal biases, which is a form of racism, it's a gift. It's a gift and the opportunity to reflect, to learn, and to grow. Um, it's a gift to be able to build rapport and cohesion in our community. And if we're able to address those things, we're able to build a stronger community. So well-meaning and good-intentioned people often use the phrase, I don't see color. It's intended to mean, I don't support racism, discrimination, and oppression. It means I'm not prejudiced, that I embrace diversity. I believe in equality. I believe we all just have to work hard. I believe in what Martin Luther King Jr. stated on judging one on the contents of their character and not the color of their skin. All that sounds really good, um, but in reality, what that means um, to us is differently. It means to not acknowledge color means to not acknowledge the institutions that actively oppress people of color. Is it done intentionally? My belief in humanity doesn't allow me to believe that it is done intentionally. But I do believe deep-seated racism and um, excuse me, implicit biases allows for those systems of oppression to still be in place. And if we're colorblind, meaning we don't see color, we're not able to engage in the conversation to be able to start dismantling those systems. Some of those names were familiar and some are not. Um, some made national headlines, but for the most part, many of the people who die as a result of racism never make the national news. Um, this is just a handful of people who were killed as a result of racism, but they were all someone's partners. They were someone's mother, daughter, sister, someone's brother, father, and son. And if you don't see color, it means you don't see me. It means that you're unwilling to open up your eyes to the atrocities faced by people of color throughout history. It means that you're unwilling to acknowledge the trauma and adverse experiences people of color face every day as living on a, as a black person in America. It means that your comfort is valued more than my life. It means that you're not willing to help. It means that we're not safe. I don't see color, it silences us. It ignores our existence. It disempowers us to seek out safety because we feel like we are alone. The first step in unity is the willingness to come to the table, followed by an honest conversation. 
It requires us to open up our hearts and our minds. Um, and to be united requires the skill of listening to understand with empathy. Racism does exist. Privilege does exist. Systemic oppression does exist. Power extended from privilege does exist. So why is this problematic? Blacks are pulled over twice as much as whites, four times likely to be searched and less likely to be found with contraband. Blacks are also more likely to have the police called on them from watching birds, for stenciling in, on their own property, or barbecuing on a charcoal grill. In the US, there is a history of anti-blackness. Um, during slavery, we were considered three-fifths of a person, and we were deemed primitive, stupid, and subservient. Um, through the Jim Crow era, we were considered morally corrupt or deviant, sinful, predatory, and criminals. After the Civil Rights Movement um, of 1965, we were deemed aggressive, evil, drug addicts, pimps, um, promiscuous, welfare queens, gang members, and that's where we're still at in 2021. And this false narrative, it comes into play when we're trying to get jobs, um, get uh, promotions, housing, and credit. Um, and then when we try to have the conversation on what's going on as far as what the data shows, we're taught that we're, we're not working hard enough. So if we go back to what that definition of respectability politics, the first part says, um, a set of beliefs suggesting conformity to mainstream standards of appearance and behavior. So that's what the article that Brian was reading was talking about um, as far as what is, deemed, um, what is deemed mainstream culture is what's considered right and what's also considered normal. And what is right and normal is contributed to white, and cult white culture. Anything outside that is deemed not normal. So to be black, or what some may call black behavior, is deemed to be inappropriate or problematic. It's also when people use the word and they reference the N-word. You can see these images in mass media, on the news, and television, and in movies. So we're told to fix ourselves by being respectable, get a good job, get an education, don't make no waves, you know, have eye contact, shake someone's hand firmly. And again, if we do these things, we're supposed to be safe. Um, and if we try to challenge any of these structures of oppression, then it's put back on us as individuals when we have no control over dismantling the, those systems. So to be good enough means that you aspire to be white, it, which you never really reach that target, regardless of what your education, regardless of what your career path. Representative Tim Scott showed us that in that video. He's done all the things, quote unquote, that's right, but he's still not quite there. He might be able to come to the table, but he's expected really not to engage, not to make too many waves, um, not to have an opinion, and definitely not one that contributes to uplifting people of color or from any other marginalized group. America is built on the principle of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. So it might surprise you and it might not, but that is just not that simple. The disparities in our education, housing, and employment healthcare and criminal justice system do exist, and all those systems impact people of color's lives on a day-to-day -day basis, and there's nothing that they can do individual-wise that's gonna dismantle those systems so that we can have equality. I would argue that two things does exist. 
Individuals must be held accountable for their actions, but at the same time, society must take responsibility for creating and maintaining these systems of um, structure and oppression. Um, as W.E.B. Du Bois states, the burden to the nation and hands of none of us are clean if we bend not our energies to righting these great wrongs. Thank you. Thank you, LaTanya. Congregation, you're welcome to join me in spirit or body and rise for our closing hymn. It's printed in the blue insert, We Walk in Love. out with your hearts, and may the truth that sets us free, and the hope that never dies, and the love that casts out fear lead us forward together, until the day spring breaks and all shadows flee away. You're welcome to have a seat and enjoy the postlude. I'll be eager to say hi to you as you make your way out of the sanctuary.